The battle in our world is a battle of words. Words will change you one way or the other. And thus the Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's why most of you are here, because you know there is a sanctifying component being under the word of God. current culture, we assume the bigger is always better. More power, right? Well, today on Way of Grace, Pastor Jessica Stan takes us back to the book of Judges. We're in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, in a message called Too Many for My Glory. We're going to go to the antithesis of what our culture demands is successful. The fewer, the better. We take a look at Gideon once again and how God thins the ranks for his glory. Here's Pastor Jesse with today's broadcast of Way of Grace. To Judges chapter 7, as we take up another installment of our observation of God's way of saving his people in this world. I told you before that God always uses a savior motif. It's going to be one person or a small group of people. As we're looking at today, another separation process. This is the fourth, really, of his teaching us how God prepares for deliverance. This one here will help us to understand more principles. So may God give you grace to hear uh, and eyes to comprehend on the text of Scripture before us. The title of our message today is Gideon. It's as if God was speaking to him. I should have put the word way too many for my glory. That's what I should have put there. Way too many for my glory. Judges chapter 7 verses 1 through 8. We saw last time how that the Spirit of God was working in Gideon to pray for confirmation. Did we not? And we understood the virtue in Gideon not taking confidence in himself. And not regarding himself naturally gifted to do what God is calling him to do. Do you guys remember that? Gideon is a model for us of the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ, like Christ, never operated out of his own intrinsic giftedness or capacity as God. He always depended upon the Father. He came in humility. He served in humility, and it was humility that obtained for Christ's honor, and that's always what we're going to learn in the Word of God. That is never, ever by works of righteousness we have done. Always by God's mercy, always working in men and women who recognize their weakness and their humility and their sinfulness and their inadequacies. inadequacies. And so Gideon prayed and asked God to show him a sign, if you guys recall, And I shared with you that that prayer and request of God giving Gideon assurance is not the same as God giving us security. Our security is in Christ. That's already established. It's immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable, undeniable. 
But we often need assurance, do we not, children of God? And particularly when you know that you're not capable of accomplishing the task that God has in front of you. Now, there are going to be a lot of lessons today and a little probing, so I hope you have your Band-Aids. We were thankful to understand the metaphor, the typology, the symbolism in the wool and the floor, were we not? We're glad to see that, that Gideon asked God to put dew on the wool. And we learned, according to Deuteronomy 32, that the dew is the doctrine of God's word that comes from heaven, that blesses us who believe on the Lord Jesus. And it's the consequence of God first giving the blessing to Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. And it's through Christ that you and I are blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly places to do all that God has called us to do. So the dew came upon the wool first, and then it came upon the floor. And God affirmed to Gideon that Gideon was a mighty man of valor and that the Lord was with him too. And that thirdly, he would defeat the Midianites as one man. Then we saw Gideon gather together what we know now is 32,000 men. 32,000 men were gathered to Gideon. Remember what we learned? Jesus said in John chapter 12, 31, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And God had exalted Gideon by gracing Gideon to have overcome his father's idol. Do you guys remember that? Tore down his father's idol and then exalted the Lord Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for our sins. And it was from that um, assignment where Gideon separated himself from his father's idolatrous house, of which we saw an analogy of that with Jesus coming into the temple at the beginning of his ministry and purging it of all of the idolatrous usurpation that went on in his father's house. And right before Jesus closed out ministry, guess what? He did it a second time because we are slow. He came to purge his father's house. And so Gideon now is kind of exalted. He's known. He's prominent. He's prominent by God's people for doing something God's people would not do. Now, all of a sudden, as you and I had learned, Gideon now has the bullseye of all three unholy Trinity nations coming after him again, right? The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of the East. Why? Because Gideon demolished the symbol of their God, Baal Peor. And you and I have learned that that's the goal of the gospel in part, is it not? to bring down and bring into captivity and demolish everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. We're talking warfare again, are we not? It may be ideological, it may be propositional, it may be theoretical, it may be philosophical, it certainly is tangible because what a person thinks he becomes, does he not? And so you and I are called upon to actually think God's thoughts after him. That's how we're transformed. But the devil also knows If he can get humanity to drink into his ideology, he can conform them into his image as well. So the battle in our world is a battle of words. The battle in our world is a battle of words. Words will change you one way or the other. 
And thus the Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's why most of you are here, because you know there is a sanctifying component being under the word of God. There is a shift that occurs for the heart that's wide open to God's word. Is that not true? And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I love to hear God's word, don't you? Because even though it hurts, it changes me. And so before us, we have another separation principle, and there's going to be a lot of points that I'm going to lay down. So if you can bear with me an hour, you'll survive and uh, you'll be able to go have lunch and be happy that you survived another sermon by Pastor Jesse. Um, The first point that we're going to deal with in our outline, because we are in a warfare motif, which warfare will be unorthodox in many ways. It's not your typical warfare, but the men fighting must be orthodox, sound and serious, not merely sincere. They must be sold out. This is where the separation is coming into play here. There'll be a lot of lessons for you and me around that point. Number one, their position for war was right. Their position for war was right. It was orthodox. It was correct. It's the thing that you do when you're in a war. And you and I know, right, all we're dealing with is two things, two dimensions, two themes in our world, worship and what? Warfare and what? That's all we're dealing with in this world, ladies and gentlemen. And there are two major entities. One is prominent sovereign. His name is the Lord God Almighty. He's the one true and living God. And then there is an imp that he created called the devil that would, that would try to get you to lie and believe he's God. That's the battle right there. That's the battle right there. And under point number one, what we're going to learn here, are two very simple propositions around warfare. Sub point A, it's engaging in a good warfare that God has called you and me to. He's not calling you and me to a warfare merely. He's calling us to a good warfare. You have heard the Bible tell you in first uh, Timothy chapter six, verse 12, let us fight the good fight of faith, right? Now, now watch this. I want you to get it. Not going to be here long. We're fighting a good fight. You have to resolve that. No man can put his hand to the plow for the kingdom of God and not know that the fight is good and the fight is righteous. If you have any doubts about the nature of the fight, you will find yourself in the category of those who will be rejected. You're going to see two sets of rejections here, are we not? And the Lord is going to say, send them home, send them home. And you know why? They're not persuaded that the fight for the glory of God is a good fight. But it is a good fight. In fact, it's the only good fight for God's glory, for the welfare of the people of God, for the salvation of sinners. The truth in this world must be preserved. Would you agree with that? So that's our first fundamental sub point. Fighting a good warfare. What do I mean by that? Look at verse one in our text. It says, then uh, Jerubbaal, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early, rose up early. That means they didn't sleep in, hint, hint, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Harad and pitched beside the well of Harab so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. You wouldn't know this unless you had a map of the Jezreel Valley, which they'll pull up here summarily so you can see it. You wouldn't know that their move was strategically 
uh, designed for the Israelites, the people under Gideon, to move closer to the enemy's camp. To move closer to the enemy's camp. We got maps up there. We need to pull them up if we have not. So stay right there. I'm going to show you. If you'll notice in verse 1, it talks about the hill of Moray. Is that not true? By the hill of Moray in the valley. So uh, here, what we have here is Moray. You guys see that in the center? The center is a hill there, is it not? And down here in the valley, this is the valley of Jezreel. This is the valley of Jezreel here. And the, uh, the people of God, uh, Gideon and his army, knows that the Midianites are right here. They are coming from this mode and they stop in this area called Harad. Isn't that what our verse says? So they're coming from this area here and this area of Gilboa, also Gilead, Mount Gilead, and their position right here. This is where the rest of our text is going to unpack itself. So they're coming from a position of height, right? In war, don't you want to be able to look down on your enemy and not look up? I've told you that this is what is called the Megiddo or Armageddon motif. An Armageddon motif in the scriptures is God positioning his people from the heights to look down on his adversaries. So when the war takes place, the people of God come down. And that's because the enemy is arrogant enough to think that he can come up to God and take God. And God positions his elect to be in a position of power and authority and dominion and perspicuity, clarity over the whole landscape. There are two things in war we have to always understand that are critical to winning a battle. First, your stratagem. Your strategy has to be sound. The second thing is your intelligence. Your intelligence. So strategically, what we have here are the people of God coming down to this area. That's going to be our major discourse here in a moment in order that they might what? See the enemy. See the enemy. Now, the enemy down here is not even aware that Gideon and his men are right here. Gideon and his men are doing reconnaissance. Gideon and his men are watching. You've got to observe your adversaries. Be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Your Bible tells you that you and I must always be circumspect. There are three verses in the New Testament that helps us understand the importance of what I'm saying under position number one. We've already seen in fighting a good warfare, you and I want to be in the right position. I share it with you, the Armageddon uh, uh, concept, and it's this idea in the word of God where God's enemies always reaches a point of boastful, prideful numbers. And then they gather together to go after God. That's, that's a theme running all the way through the Bible, is it not? They gather together to go after God. This is the way Micah chapter 5 verse 1 puts it in a definition of the ultimate Armageddon battle. This is something you guys have been taught in eschatology that we are headed towards an Armageddon battle. That's a whole nother conversation. But Armageddon is the idea of the gathering of the wicked when it feels like it has enough power and capacity to completely extinguish the presence of God and the people of God. Listen to the way the prophet puts it. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. This is God talking to the enemy. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Who is that judge that they're going to smite? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They smote him of whom Zechariah would say, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. What does that mean? It means that all secular world systems realize that Jesus Christ being Lord and Christ and sovereign ruler over everything has to go. You must remove the gospel from the conversation. Otherwise, the enemy knows his kingdom is always under liability. So in our world, strategically, what you see everywhere is a diminishing, a pinching off and a getting rid of the word of God, a diminishing and pinching off and getting rid of a biblical worldview, a diminishing and pinching off and ending any notion that there is one true living God and his son, Jesus Christ, and all human beings have to bow to him. That ideology must go. It has to go today with the same vitriol urgency that the children of Israel and the Roman Empire did when they thought that they had gotten rid of Jesus when they killed him. But he rose again the third day and God highly exalted him. You know you have to be stupid. When you see it over and over and over again in the book of prophecy that every time you go after God, you get defeated. And then you try it again. You know you have to be stupid, right? So our enemy is reprobate. What that means is that you can't reason with him. That's what reprobates are, unreasonable people. That means you can't sit down and compromise with him. There's no compromise. You've got to stand on the truth. And you've got to believe that it is a good fight, worthy of fighting. Subpoint B, aware of the enemy's wiles. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 6, 11, in keeping with the motif of war. I love the way Vody Bauckham put it the other day in his uh, speech at a conference around the battle that we just won with overturning Roe v. Wade. Vody said, I don't know how you think you can read your Bible and not realize that you're in a war. There's war all through the Bible, to the, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. How does anybody read their Bible and not know you're in a warfare? Because you're not reading it properly. You're not taking it seriously. And you and I are going to press into some of the avenues in which we know we need to take the word of God more seriously. And so here's what we read. Put on the whole armor of God. What does that mean? You're in a fight. In order that you may be able to stand against the what of the devil? The wiles of the devil. Literally in the Greek, methodotos. This is the idea. Methods. Methodos, right? Methodotos is the idea that you and I actually know his methods. And once you know his methods, you can fight against him. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the methods of the devil. I love the English translation because the idea of methods here means schemes and strategies of all kinds. uh, uh, Schemes and strategies of all kinds. What does that mean, child of God? If you're going to fight a good warfare, you cannot be blind, ignorant or indifferent to your enemy. It blows me away how Christians will say, well, I don't want to know anything but about Jesus. Right. I think you're hiding something. I think you're hiding something. Because God's servants from the beginning of time to the end of time, who were all servants of Christ, always knew Christ's enemies. And here, one of the chief servants of God is saying to you, you and me, we should know his wiles, right? 
We should know that he operates through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life, shouldn't we? We should know that he is a usurper of truth. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. We should know that he wants to take the place of Christ in men and women's hearts who do not have a love for the truth. Shouldn't we know that? We should know that he will always persecute the church because he can't get to God. He know he can't. So he has to get to that which is next to God, which is the body of Christ. You and I should know that. We should know that he is a liar from the beginning and the truth never abode in him. We should always understand that there's some lie under some truth that he's proffering to you in order to poison you. Am I making some sense? Well, we should know that. And yet it appears that we don't really fight a good warfare in this present age. That's getting ready to come up here in a moment in the separation. So we see another text that I think is extremely important to our being uh, given the imperative here. The uh, next text will be Second Corinthians chapter 2, 12. This is work on the inside of the kingdom where Paul talks about another aspect of, of the devil's work. This is where the church had to deal with um, a person committing uh, fornication with his father's wife, adultery with his father's wife. He had taken her to be his wife and they summarily dealt with it and God granted repentance on the part of that person. And the church did not have a ready mind to integrate that person back into the community. They wanted to keep them up on a pedestal and keep whipping them, if you will, as an example of self-righteousness and moralism and law. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So the enemy will take your good and then if you don't have the right attitude or heart about it, cause you to actually sin against God by going beyond 39 strikes. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. And the law says, if a man is worthy of stripes, you must not beat him beyond 40 stripes. That's called justice. If you go one stripe more, that is injustice. That means you're doing it out of your own volition, your own bent, your own insecurity, your own self-righteousness. And according to Jewish law, the safe way never to go over 40 is to stop at 39. That's why Paul says they beat me with 39 stripes. Twice for the cause of the gospel. And now we know who the they were, don't we? The Jewish people who despised the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And so we see here, uh, it's the account in uh, 2 Corinthians where they were dealing with the brother who in 1 Corinthians had committed the trespass and Paul is remedying the situation. And in that text, he talks about, and we understand the devil's devices. We understand his schemes. It's another expression that requires us recognizing how our enemy works. Um, and, what, and what that means, I just want to draw this out, is you have to know that the enemy is always wanting to either take our good and divert it from a proper outcome or cause us to buy into bad stratagems and practices that will also bring negative outcomes. It was a beautiful account where he told the church at Corinth, stop it, stop it, don't walk in your insecurity, bring that brother in. Because when you create an environment where unforgiveness is dominating a community or dominating a family or dominating any kind of group, you are opening the door for the enemy to get advantage of you. Am I making some sense? And that's because we're all weak by nature. And anyone can raise an accusation against you. And anyone can hold you in that accusation. So one of the key elements that helps the body of Christ continue to fight a good warfare, are y'all ready? 
forgiveness of sins. When you have the vast majority of the people in your church understanding the mechanism of forgiveness, you are able to release people unilaterally. You're able to release people bilaterally. You're able to keep it moving instead of thinking your primary job is to judge. Well, you are listening to Way of Grace with Pastor Jessica Stand from Grace Bible Church here in Hayward. Closing out our time together today, we invite you to reach out to us. Let us know how the program encourages you in your walk with Christ. Questions, comments, prayer requests are always welcome. You can either write to us, give us a call, or stop by our website and drop us an email. Now, the best place to go, of course, is the website. Not only will you be able to write to us via email, you'll be able to get more information about who we are, what we believe, worship times, how to get here. Grace-Bible.com is our website. Again, that's Grace-Bible.com. If you wish to give us a call, the number is 510-886-9782. That's 510-886-9782. If you're writing to us, our address is 22768 Main Street. That's 22768 Main Street. Here in Hayward, the zip code 94541. That's 22768 Main Street, Hayward, California, 94541. One final note as we close out our time today, this program is listener-supported. If you wish to partner with us, we would be more than grateful. This broadcast airs throughout the Bay Area, as well as online, impacting thousands for the sake of Christ. And that is our hope and our goal. If you'd like to partner with us along those lines, feel free to write or give us a call. No gift is too large, no gift too small, whether a one-time gift or a monthly support. You're more than welcome to reach out. We would love to partner with you as we minister the gospel of Jesus to the Bay Area and the World Wide Web. Thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time, may Christ be your way of grace.